Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Once I reviewed each of his works in the chronological order of publication, but Ka is a wheel, it all goes round again, and here I am once more back at the beginning on a new phase of the journey to examine each of the endings of the works of Stephen King, to determine whether or not King deserves his reputation for having an inability to successfully land his endings. So what we've been doing lately is that as I move forward, the focus of this podcast is going to be to examine the climax, the falling action, and the resolution of each of Stephen King's endings of his novels and break it down by character, themes, conflict, and plot to determine whether or not it meets the criteria of being an objectively good ending. And also, I'm going to weigh in on whether or not I personally like the ending. This week, we will be examining the conclusion to The Dead Zone. I know I should be uh, really reviewing The Stand um, because the original publication of The Stand came out after The Shining, which I reviewed last week. But I'm going to hold off on all of my thoughts on The Stand for the, um, the complete edition that came out in 1990, I believe, so we're going to have to wait. And besides, to be perfectly honest, um, with as I record this, uh, there is a lot of talk of the coronavirus, and there are cancellations that are occurring left and right. Um, tours are being canceled, big events are being canceled, parades are being canceled, countries are shutting down uh, the tourism industry. So there, there's just a, there's a lot going on right now in the world. And, you know, talking about a book that, that deals with a worldwide plague is just, it's, I don't know, I, it, it's not really going to be fun to talk about, much like this episode. So I do want to give a spoiler slash trigger warning for anyone for this particular episode, The Dead Zone, uh, for anyone, and I, I do not say this with any sort of humor, I, I do say, I say this sincerely um, for anyone that, that doesn't want to listen for the remainder of, the, of this episode who might be triggered for the following reasons. Um, if you don't want to talk about politics, if you don't want to hear politics, if right now just politics is just too much and whenever you log onto your computer, whenever you go onto Facebook and, and Twitter, it's just you know, politics 24-7 um, being thrown down your, your, your throat. If you are just over it and you don't want to tune into the Stephen King cast and be reminded of the state of politics today, um, then you might want to avoid this. Similarly, if you happen to be a supporter of the sitting president of the United States and you don't want to hear any any comparisons being made between the events of this book and the politician within this book and the politician that is currently um, sitting in the White House, uh, then this probably won't be the episode for you. Um, so, you know, I, I want to be cognizant of as many different types of ideologies out there. Um, and I understand that, you know, there are, are, are many uh, different types of listeners that I have. So honestly, if, if you think that, you know, you're going to get frustrated from this, um, then and maybe this isn't the episode for you, and, you know, we can regroup next week. But I just wanted to, to throw that out there because I do know that, um, you know, I, for me personally, art and politics goes hand in hand. Um, you, you, you artists live within the, a world, and the world is shaped 
um, by politics, and it, it's hard to distance yourself. And King has been a very political um, writer uh, forever. So, you know, uh, in, in the case here of The Dead Zone, which was published in 1979, a lot of the things that he's writing about in The Dead Zone is applicable to to this day and age. So, um, so I mean, he is definitely a politically minded uh, social activist. And for those of you who might not share the same feelings, like I said, this this might not be uh, for you. Okay, so we have a uh, couple emails, well, not emails, but we have uh, a couple Facebook messages that I want to share about the ending of The Dead Zone before I get any farther. So we have Jason who writes, I just finished this book a week or two ago on a reread, and I thought the ending served as a perfect conclusion to the novel. I felt this book had a lot of mini sagas intertwined within it, with each scenario coming to a fitting end as the next scenario began to play out. But the overall concept of good versus evil and John Smith's struggling ideals on stepping in to intervene played out perfect. Stephen King made the stakes to John's survival very clear, so the ending was inevitable. It felt logical but satisfying. Final pages where Sarah thought she felt the presence of Johnny was a nice touch that gave a sense... um, where she felt the presence of Johnny was a nice touch that gave the sense that though his earthly journey may have concluded, a loved one is always not far away. And then Amber wrote, the Stilson part of the ending was very satisfying and the Sarah part was very lovely. It was sad but sweet. I think it's my second favorite after the end of 1122.63. Kevin writes, this ending shook me hard. Stilson was terrifying and holding the kid up as a shield, wow. The vision of the future and Johnny's death Man, just thinking about it gives me chills all over again. It was a downer of an ending, but one of Stephen King's best. John writes, great book, fair movie. Pierre writes, one of his best endings, a prime example, he can write great ones. Actually, I think his early ones are all pretty good, even if they rely too much on fiery climaxes. It takes a while for the notoriously weak endings to pop up. Aaron writes, love it, one of his best. And then Craig writes, one of my favorite endings of his. It was very satisfying. Before I get any farther, let me read the Wikipedia summary so that I have uh, some context for the ending itself. The prologue introduces the two main characters. In 1953, a young boy named John Smith is knocked unconscious while ice skating. While recovering, he mumbles a strange message, don't jump it no more, to an adult on the scene. The knot on John's head fades after a few days and he thinks no more of it. A few months later, the adult is seriously injured while he tries to jumpstart a car. Two years later, during an unconnected incident in Iowa, a young door-to-door Bible salesman, Greg Stilson, who suffers emotional issues and daydreaming of greatness, is vindictively, he vindictively kicks an aggressive dog to death. By 1970, Johnny is now a high school teacher in eastern Maine. After visiting a county fair with his girlfriend, Sarah, and eerily winning repeatedly at the Wheel of Fortune, Johnny is involved in a car accident on his way home, which lands him in a coma for four and a half years. Upon waking, Johnny finds that he has suffered neural injury, but when he touches people and objects, he is able to tell them things that they did not know. For example, he knows that a nurse's son would have successful surgery, states that his doctor's mother, long believed dead, is living in Carmel, California, warns his physical therapist that her house is about to burn down, tells Sarah that her lost wedding ring is in her suitcase pocket, and later recounts the story behind a St. Christopher medallion that is owned by a skeptical reporter. Johnny shrugs off local media reports of his supposed psychic talents and accepts an offer to resume teaching, but begins to suffer from severe headaches. 
Richard Dees, a reporter for the national tabloid Inside View, makes an unsolicited visit to Johnny's house to offer him a lucrative position, writing psychic predictions for the newspaper. When Dees explains that they would essentially be running only fake predictions under Johnny's name, Johnny violently ejects him from the property. In retaliation, Inside View maliciously prints a story denouncing his clairvoyance as a phony, but that brings Johnny relief and hopes to resume a normal life. The hope is soon broken, however, when he is contacted by Sheriff George Bannerman, who is desperate to solve a series of murders. Johnny is initially reluctant for fear of attracting more unwanted publicity, but changes his mind after a nine-year-old girl becomes the killer's latest victim. Johnny's extra sense provides enough detail to identify the killer. Bannerman's deputy Frank Dodd, a sexual sadist who commits suicide and leaves a confession after seeing Johnny at the scene. As Johnny feared, the nationally reported incident reignites the public's interest in Johnny's clairvoyance. Stilson, now a successful businessman and elected mayor of Ridgeway, New Hampshire, still suffers from his emotional problems. Asked to straighten out a friend's teenage nephew for wearing an obscene t-shirt, he sets the shirt on fire, terrorizes the youth with a broken bottle, and threatens to kill him if he tells anyone. In 1976, he decides to run an independent campaign for a seat in the House of Representatives and blackmails a local businessman into raising funds for him. Johnny's offer to return to his teaching job is rescinded as he is considered too controversial to be effective as a teacher. He moves to New Hampshire and takes a job as a tutor for a wealthy young man, Chuck. He also takes up an interest in politics and becomes concerned when he watches a rally for Stilson on TV. Johnny attends a rally for Stilson in person and on touching his hand, has a horrific vision of an older Stilson who, as president, causes a massive worldwide nuclear conflict. Johnny's health starts to worsen. He contemplates how he might prevent Stilson's presidency and compares the matter to the question of whether, if time travel were possible, one should kill Hitler in 1932. Eventually, he concludes that the only certain way to avoid a terrible future he has seen is to assassinate Stilson, but he procrastinates. He rationalizes his inaction because of doubt in the vision he has seen and his abhorrence of murder, as well as his belief that there is no urgent need to act immediately because Stilson is clearly many years older in his vision. As Johnny continues to contemplate the matter, he has another vision and warns Chuck not to go to his high school graduation party because the facility will be struck by lightning and will burn down. Chuck's father agrees to host an alternative party for Chuck and other students, but their party at home is interrupted by news of a lightning strike and many deaths at the original venue. Johnny also learns that an FBI agent who had been investigating Stilson has been murdered with a car bomb. Johnny moves to Phoenix where he takes a job as a road maintenance technician for the local public works department. He learns that his headaches and blackouts are caused by a brain tumor and that without treatment he only has a few months left to live. Johnny takes the fire at the party as a warning. He knew that the fire would happen but did not take that seriously enough, and so people died. Realizing that he will not live much longer, whatever he decides, Johnny refuses surgery and buys a rifle to shoot Stilson at the next rally. At the next rally, Stilson begins his speech. Johnny attempts to shoot Stilson but misses and is wounded by Stilson's bodyguards. Before he can fire again, Stilson grabs a young child and holds him up as a human shield. Johnny pauses, unable to shoot, and is shot twice by the bodyguards. He falls off the balcony and fatally injures himself. A bystander photographs Stilson in the act of using the child as a shield, and when published, the picture destroys Stilson's political future. Dying, Johnny touches Stilson a final time, but only feels dwindling impressions and knows that the terrible future has been prevented. An epilogue, 
notes from the dead zone, intersperses excerpts of the letter from Johnny to his loved ones, a Q&A transcript of purported Senate committee, um, investigation of Johnny's uh, attempt to assassinate Stilson, and a narrative of Sarah's visit to Johnny's grave. Sarah feels a brief moment of psychic contact with Johnny's spirit and comforted drives away. So let's talk about the criteria for a good ending. Does it provide an appropriate conclusion to its characters that are consistent with the characters' actions, conflicts, or themes from the book? Absolutely. The tale of John Smith comes to a natural and tragic conclusion. This is a character who, since we first met, um, he just can't catch a break. From the car crash, the coma, his loss of job, the ruination of his relationship before it can truly even begin, how he's pushed to the outside of his community from his growing psychic abilities, to the tease of the life that he could have had when he has his one night with his ex, his shrinking lifespan, to the ultimate realization that he needs to sacrifice himself to save the world, knowing that his character is going to be vilified in history books, it's clear to say that to be Johnny Smith would suck on a cosmic level. Does it successfully wrap up the plot? Specifically, do the events build upon one another with consistency? I would say yes. From the get-go, King establishes that the story is not just Johnny's, but Stilson's as well. Not only do we get the story of Johnny's growing supernatural powers, but Stilson's growing political powers. One has the ability to save the world, and the other has the ability to end it. King establishes these two plots as parallel tracks who start to converge as we barrel towards the ending until there is only one track that has our two main characters performing their parts on the stage to determine the fate of the world. The threat of Greg Stilson is nullified through Johnny's actions. Personally, I like the fact that Stilson is kept alive. King understands that if Stilson was assassinated, then it would turn him into a martyr. His actions reveal a cowardly, craven man who has to live with his shame and his own failures. Does the conclusion serve the theme, the symbolisms, and the motifs? At the heart of the novel is the age-old battle between free will versus predestination. How much say do we have in our lives? Was Sarah always fated to get sick from the hot dog, which caused Johnny to take her home, which ultimately leads to the car crash that puts him in a coma, which causes his burgeoning psychic abilities to really manifest? Or was it just bad luck? When Johnny sees the future, is he seeing what he's supposed to see in order to ensure a future that's always written in stone? Meaning, is Stilson not president because Johnny was supposed to stop him from becoming president? Was Johnny's actions predetermined? Or was Stilson going to become president unless Johnny utilized free will and determined the future through his actions? These questions are posed until the very end, and King doesn't give any more of an answer than we can give. Because we're dealing with a novel about a political assassination, themes like predestination, free will, go hand in hand with insanity and delusion. King establishes Johnny as our hero, and we see the world through his eyes so we know that he's not crazy, but to the rest of the world he is. And certainly, if the events of this novel played out in the real world, the actions of John Smith would be condemned, and he would be rightfully be demonized. In a piece of fiction, his actions are considered heroic. But in the real world, I need to state this as clearly as possible, no matter which way you cut it, there is no heroism to assassination. And this is why I have to draw a clear line between um, fact and fiction, and that I need to discuss this right now as fiction, as something, uh, a work that Stephen King created. However, I do want to say this. Under the next question, are there other factors that we need to consider while discussing the conclusion of this book? 
And yes, um, there is a very large elephant in the room that I feel that we need to talk about. Um, when I first reviewed The Dead Zone, it was in October of 2014, nearly two years before the election whose end, uh, you know, landed us where we are right now. And it is very difficult to talk about The Dead Zone in a post-Trump world without talking about the parallels to our reality. The descriptions of Stilson as he amasses his power and the energy level at his base, it, it, it's terrifyingly similar um, to our current president. Uh, his, in, in both the book and in real life, um, his cartoonish and thuggish behaviors are scoffed at by the establishment who dismisses him, believing that he is so outlandish he'll never win. And yet, um, despite all logic, and historical precedent, uh, his behaviors only embolden his base and push him closer and closer to the presidency, even though it's clear to the audience that his irrationality, narcissism, self-interest, and anger would place the nation in great danger. In a fictional novel like The Dead Zone, King presents Johnny's decision as a selfless act of bravery. But when talking about real-world events, we need to condemn individual acts of terrorism. So I need to state this clearly. Let me repeat, though Stilson is a terrifying analog to our current president, no one should become the Johnny Smith in a real-world scenario. And I just need to make that perfectly clear. Okay? So the ending does involve the attempted assassination on a Trump-like figure. Um, of course, this was written many decades before Trump, but the parallels are there. Um, and it's, it's difficult. All of this is hard to talk about um, in, in the current world in which we, we, we live. Um, so I just needed to, to state that when discussing the ending here, it is, is very, very difficult to, uh, to talk about. But it is part of the conversation because there are parallels. So, two things. Do I like the ending of this book? I do like this ending. And based on everything that we talked about, is it a good ending? And yes, it is. Um, you know, like I said, I think that it is important that Greg Stilson lives. Um, and I think that the, the, the assassination of John Smith actually adds to the tragedy of John Smith. Um, so all in all, I, I think that this is a very, very powerful book, and I think that's a very, very powerful ending. So that, that right now, um, we are, we're batting four for four in both good endings and endings that I liked for our, our recent experiment. Okay, guys, that's all I got this week. It's really short. I do apologize, um, but I definitely wanted to get something out this weekend. So um, I just want everyone to make sure that wherever you are, whenever you're listening to this, you're, you're, you're staying safe and healthy um, and you're not panicking. Uh, so just um, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and I think that we'll be able to all get through this together. Um, so I'll be back next week, um, and may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here then, where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast.